I'm really excited to teach this class. I got to tell you that that we were the subject where we've gotten to Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. And they really are, Janet Seifert makes fun of me for saying this, but they really are perhaps my most favorite passage in the Bible. They're certainly some of the most um, uh, profound passages, verses. They, they, are, they are, are, are truly pregnant with, Gracie had, uh, what, nine weeks ago she had her twins, our twin granddaughters. This is like quintuplets. This is like really pregnant with so much life. And I'm really excited to get into it. And I was talking to, to Pastor David about it. He had written a paper on this in seminary. And I was talking to him about it. He said, uh, please tell me you're not going to do it in a, in a week. And I said, PD, come on. I'm the guy who took five weeks, basically, on one verse in chapter one that everybody else just reads through. Come on. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here. I hope to get this done in two weeks. But it may take a little bit longer. It's just that good. In fact, we could have done the whole series just camped out in these verses. So I've entitled today's lesson, Christ, the Paradigm. Paradigm's not a word that a lot of people use, perhaps, but, but it means the, 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 the perfect model. Christ, the perfect model. Now, we live in an age where people are specialists. They specialize in stuff. They specialize in interests. Yada made me some cookies. She specializes in making really tasty food. We've got people who specialize in areas. And, and one of the drawbacks of specialization is sometimes you know one area and you're not as conversant with another area. So, for example, uh, uh, my buddy Rick sent me this. Uh, he found this week. My second attempt at making a salad. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. <clears throat> You know, sometimes there are things you know, and sometimes there are things you don't. And, and that's the way it is. And, and there's an expression that gets used, an expression of living in silos, where this is your niche, this is your silo, this is what you know. And so we've got silo A, and we've got silo B, and we've got silo C and D. And, and somebody can live in silo A, but all they're going to have to the puzzle is the piece of A. And somebody over in silo B has silo B piece of the puzzle. But if they don't get together, they don't get the benefit of seeing a bigger picture. Now, don't get me wrong, specialization is very important. I don't want to take my shoes to get fixed by someone who doesn't know how to fix shoes. Uh, I don't want to go to my daughter's OB-GYN doctor, who's great at delivering twins, but would not be very useful for me if I had brain surgery on my plate that I needed. I'd rather go to a specialist in brain surgery. So it, 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 it makes sense that specialization is important. But there's a benefit to also being, uh, I, there's a word called polymath. Uh, 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 math is from the Greek word mathetes, which means learner, student. And poly means plenty. So it's someone who knows a lot about a lot of different areas. Now, some of you are of my generation. That does not apply to you, Oliver. But Oliver, back when I was your age, you could watch such a Mr. Know-it-all on TV. And it would be uh, something that's not working well because my internet is really down. But wait, maybe it's coming. Let's see. Maybe it's not. And now, here's that super salesman, Mr. Know-it-all. Thanks, Brock, but I'm not selling supers, I'm selling soap. So, sell. Hello, friends. Today, we take up the problem of selling these here soap flakes. The best way is to cleverly disguise yourself as a washer repair. 
we won't keep going with Dear Bullwinkle, but we will because this sounds too bad. But you can YouTube these things and watch those old reruns of him as Mr. Know-it-all. He's one of, of, of uh, the more recent ilk that makes fun of it, but, but there have been people in this world who really have a good grasp, not in specialization per se, but in broad swaths of knowledge. If we were in 350 B.C. over in Greece, we could go study under Aristotle and we could study a wide range of things. I mean, I wonder if he ever thought that 2,350 years later at Champion Forest Baptist Church on the internet being broadcast around the world, someone would be talking about Aristotle. Um, I, I can't imagine that he would have conceived of that. If he did conceive of that, he had a massive ego. Uh, but that's okay. But if you see a sculpture like this of Aristotle, see all of these scrolls in his hands, all of these parchments? These scrolls that you see are very typical in carvings or pictures of Aristotle because he was a polymath. He was one of these Mr. Know-it-alls. He wrote on all sorts of subjects. He wrote on physics. He wrote on ethics. He wrote on public speaking, rhetoric. He wrote on political science. Some of the most profound writings still today come from the pen of Aristotle as he talked about different forms of government and what their strengths were and how they can be in their highest and best use or how they can be abused. He wrote quite profoundly on medicine. He wrote on theology. He wrote on philosophy. If I had asked you, what was Aristotle? Who was Aristotle? Most of you would have said a philosopher. He wrote profoundly on biology, on dreams and why you dream and how you dream and, and what the dreaming process is. He wrote on mechanical engineering and mechanics. He wrote on memory and how it works. He wrote on poetry, as if he didn't have enough other things to write. He wrote on math. Now, he was not a silo thinker. He was a thinker across a broad swath. The reason I'm beginning the class this way is because I want to look at a passage that speaks to who Jesus is. And because most people are silo people, most people think of who Jesus is from their silo. And what I want to challenge us to do is to break out of our silo and think across a broad swath of different thought process. So most thinkers about Jesus are silo thinkers. And you'll find some group who don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Some believe he was just a myth. Because that's their mentality, that's their silo, they live their life with focuses on other areas, and they're able to dismiss Jesus and not give him much thought because he's just a myth. For others, they'll say, well, he wasn't a myth, but he was a good man. I like some of what he said. And in their silo of life and the way they think about things, that's just who Jesus was. It fits into their ways of thinking. Now, there's a host of people who believe that the Jesus that we speak of in this class is really a creation of the church. That over the several hundred years after this man Jesus lived, whom we can't really say much about because the writings about him were done by the church trying to cultivate this image of him as the Messiah so the people would make up miracles and the people would make up ideas and the people would make up theology. They made up the virgin birth. They made up this idea that he's the son of God. They made up the resurrection. They made up, they made up, they made up, they made up. And the Jesus we 
read about is simply a creation of the church or his followers. And people who live in a silo and think in a silo way that where that fits with their life are able to make that assessment and come to that conclusion. And they'll interpret the evidence to support what they already believe. Confirmation bias. Now, there's another silo who see that Jesus is God who came as a man. But even within that, you know, you grow up in a church. I've got our daughter Rebecca here. She can tell you Jesus is the Son of God, made incarnate. Rebecca's favorite day of the year is Christmas Day. But she got that initially at least, by growing up in a Christian home. And so her silo, her way of thinking of Jesus, is one that is consistent with that. What I've really wanted to do in my life, though, is blow out the silo. I want to blow out this idea of, I believe this because my mom, who's seated next to Rebecca, taught me when I was young, Jesus is the Son of God. I want... I want to not live in my silo. I want to live and look at all of the different aspects and evidences and reasons to believe what I choose to believe. And I've spent a good deal of my life doing that. And if you ask me today, why do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I would give you a whole lot of reasons, but way down the list would be it's the silo where I grew up. Because I tried to get out of that silo. Now, into this idea comes the passage we're looking at today. And the passage we're looking at today is one of the reasons I don't live in this silo because I was brought up in it. But rather, I believe that that concept is the truth behind who Jesus was and is. So this passage comes from Paul. And Paul is writing Philippians. He's writing a letter to a church that he started. He's writing this letter around 60 or so A.D., less than 30 years after the death of Christ. And this is the passage. Let's read it together, and then we'll... we'll Get ready for class. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, the resume, the CV, the cred, that is above everybody's CV, name, cred. So that at the name, in response to who he is and what he's done of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I've set the table with the passage I want to do three things with you this morning. Uh, different kind of table, but it was an easy way to say, uh, I got three shots today. Okay. Number one. <laughs> oh, yeah, I worked on that one. Let's do it again. Get the click. Okay. First thing we're going to do is we're going to shoot to understand the overview and placement of this passage within its context. The second thing we're going to do 
is look at Christ as the perfect model, the paradigm. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to dig into the song. You say, what song? Oh, wait till we get there. So with that, let's go. The overview and placement. I'm saying this to many of you just as a way of reminder. But it never hurts to be reminded of what you already know because it helps put into a frame of reference what we're going to be discussing. And for some of you, some of this may be a little new. We always have new people watching online and new people joining the class. But let's start by talking about Paul. Paul the author. Paul was a polymath like Aristotle. Paul was someone who didn't live in one silo, but had a broad swath of knowledge. Paul was trained in law. He was able to prosecute as a prosecutor for the high court of the Jews. He defended himself in court when he was brought uh, uh, in, in, in a criminal process. He argued for his rights all along the way where he chose to and asserted them. Paul was trained in law, but not just in legal law, but also the Old Testament law, the Torah. Paul was well-read in philosophy and Greek poetry. We know this because when Paul was in Athens arguing with various philosophical groups, he quoted Greek philosophers and Greek poets. And it wasn't the kind of thing where he said, hang on, let me Google this. I think there's something out there that's relevant. His iPhone was out of batteries. He was able to quote from memory. And it's not surprising because he had ties in Tarsus where he was born. And Tarsus was famous at the time as an intellectual seat that prepared teachers. Had one of the biggest teaching schools. And so it was, I mean, it's like Lubbock, Texas today. Paul was well-versed in athletics. Not something typical with Jewish people, especially because most of the Greek athletic games were done, uh, uh, competed, the competitions were done naked. So the, the Jewish people in general wouldn't have much to do with it. But, but Paul is constantly using analogies that, that comes straight out of the athletic competitions, whether he's talking about running the race or whether he's talking about wrestling. Paul, Paul is very conversant, and they roll right off his pen or his tongue. So with the idea of Paul being a polymath, let's dig into him and add a couple more things. First of all, Paul came from a very prominent family. Uh, I've been digging on Ancestry.com uh, in my spare time, trying to figure out how much of my family I can trace back. And I'm only tracing back to the good people. I'm not like, you know, oh, I'm related to Jesse James. Well, let's forget that. You know, I want someone, by golly, who landed on the Mayflower. You know, I, I want... I'm really looking to ultimately be related to the Queen of England somehow because that whole thing's falling apart. I figure it's a good time for us to be making our play for the title. Um, I'm joking. <clears throat> but Paul was able to trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. Paul knew his lineage kept it, his family kept it intact through the Babylonian captivity. 
through the Maccabean Revolt, through Alexander the Great's conquering of, of Judea, through all of the times that Judea swapped uh, ownership with uh, Egypt uh, uh, or Assyria or Babylon. He's able to go all the way back. And his family had done great things. He not only that, but he personally had a stellar career. He was set to be one of the best of the best of the best on the career path of Judaism. He was more zealous for his Judaistic faith than any of his contemporaries. And that zeal not only meant his personal desire and drive, but it also meant his success. I mean, he's on that road to the top. The sky's the limit. And in the midst of all of this, he was also one of the most vociferous foes of Christ. He was anti-Christ. He was persecuting the church. He was going to see it stamped out. He oversees the execution of Stephen. He's got the papers to go to Damascus to arrest others. He's prosecuting. He's got zero qualms because he wants to purify the faith. He wants to uphold the Torah. And he does not believe that Jesus could ever be the Messiah because Jesus died on a cross. And the law says, cursed is every man who's hung on a tree. So how could the Messiah be cursed? Paul didn't realize yet that the Messiah was cursed by taking on our curse. So Paul's persecuting the church. And in the midst of all of this, Paul has a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. Now, you could sit here and say, now, Mark, you know, you can say all this stuff because you just believe the Bible. Now, these are things that anybody who studies in any of the silos have to say is right. I mean, nobody seriously doubts whether or not there existed Paul. Nobody seriously doubts what his trajectory was. Nobody seriously doubts. The, the, the writing is with precision. We've got Paul's writings that are clearly Paul's. Oh, some people will fuss over whether Ephesians is or whether the, the pastorals are. That's fine. Just take the ones where nobody fusses who's an academic. And what I'm telling you is true. Paul has a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus that causes him to do a 180 that takes him off the road to success and puts him on what some would view to be a road to despair. That strips him of his family's interests. That strips him of his money. That strips him of so many things that takes him from the cushy, cushy life and puts him into an arduous, difficult, troubling life that ultimately takes his life. And this encounter that Paul had is something that is, is to me of most profound significance as I try to assess what caused him to do that 180. And it personally builds my faith. So I look at the silos and I want to know who is Jesus for Paul? Who's Jesus for the guy who was willing and did change it all and die for what he believed to be true? Was Jesus some myth? Clearly not. Was Jesus a good man? Not alone, but certainly was a good man. Was Jesus created by the church? Heavens no, Paul's writing about Jesus before Matthew's been written. Probably before Mark's been written. Maybe not. Matthew may have had some crib notes that Paul had. Matthew was a tax collector. He's taking notes while Jesus is talking. He's got some of the teachings and words of Jesus. And, and Paul's with Luke. 
Luke's gospel is not written. But Paul and Luke are probably sharing some of the same crib notes. Sure looks like it when you compare 1 Corinthians with Luke on the Lord's Supper. John's not been written yet. Acts hasn't been written yet. The events of the book of Acts are unfolding as Paul starts his writing. Now, by the time we get to Philippians, it's about 60 or so A.D., and we are at the place where, Paul, where the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome, waiting to appeal to Caesar. But it is very clear to me that Paul also understands that Jesus is God as a man. That's not some fiction made later. That's not some late Christology. It's as early as can be. We're within the lifetime of not just Paul, but many of the apostles. And many other witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. So this is the guy that's writing this letter. And in this letter, Paul is teaching the Philippians how to live in the gospel. How to live in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. How that historical event where God paid the price for our sins affects how you and I live today. And if the gospel does not affect and change the way you live then I beg of you, dig into the gospel. I'm not as concerned about how you live for its sake. Oh, I am concerned. Don't get me wrong. It affects your success in life. It, it affects the joy you've got. It affects others around you. Your sins get visited on the next generations, but your blessings can overflow to others. There's a huge aspect of that, but it's not going to get you to heaven. What gets you into the, 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 the new heaven and earth is, is living under the cross of Christ. But if you live under the cross of Christ, it will change who you are. Think of a thermometer. It is August. It is hot. A thermometer says it's 98 degrees. Now, if the thermometer says it's 98 degrees, does that make it 98 degrees? That's well, 98 degrees out there whether you have a thermometer or not. The thermometer's merely showing it. See, the gospel changes who you are. You can see it like a thermometer. Your life will show it. If your life doesn't show it, you got a problem because your thermometer's busted. You got to get back and you got to let that gospel change who you are. So Paul has told the Philippians weeks ago in an earlier verse, but it would have been fresh in their hearing as they had heard this, to live their, let the manner of their life be worthy of the gospel of the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ. And he said that in the verses immediately before where we are, where we were two weeks ago, to be of one mind, being of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And it's within the flow of that that we have today's passage, as Paul continues to explain how our manner of life should be worthy of the gospel. And so he says to have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, the Greek starts out with tauto, which is this. And almost every time, not every time, but almost every time, Paul uses tauto. And he uses it in Philippians, I think, probably over half a dozen times. Almost every time he's referencing what he's been talking about before. And, and so it almost always points backwards. And it does here. This mind that he's telling you to have is the one he's been talking about. To count others as more important than yourselves. 
not to act in, in vain conceit, but to, to care and to seek out others. So this whole idea of, of do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more, that's what he's saying when he says, Tauto, this. That's the pointing backwards of this. So this is the attitude you're to have. And that's where we're placing this. He's just tying what he's doing. What we've done is tied it to what he's been talking about before and who he is. You got it? That's point one. Point two. <laughs> Sorry, it's going to get old. But I worked too hard on that just to like make it a one-shot deal. Get it? One-shot deal? Okay. Um, all right, I'm getting behind the eight ball here on time. Um, sorry, I have a rack of these jokes. Um, and I can give them on cue. Uh, okay, I'm, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I've, I need to get to class. Um, so Christ the model. He says, Tauto, Fronete. Fronete is... Um, a word that Paul's been using over and over, phreneo, he's used it over and over, the verb, in this uh, letter. And, and it's translated here, mind, and, and that's good. It's a mindset. It's a disposition. It's, it's, um, uh, it's an attitude in, in a sort. And so he says, your mindset, your disposition, your thinking process, your your attitude needs to be that which is Christ's. That needs to be your mind. Now, this word here is an imperative, which means he's telling you, do this. It's an instruction. Do this. But it's also in the present tense. And what that means in Greek is he's talking about doing something continually. All the time, 24-7 in this sense. So make it a deliberate decision to ever, not, don't, don't, look. Don't have the mind among yourselves of Christ. Don't have the attitude of Christ on Sunday morning when you're in church. And then you can leave and have your other mind when you go home. No, Paul's not schizophrenic where you get one mind here and one mind there. Paul's not silo where this is holy behavior. You do this when you're in church and you do this when you're not. Paul's not a silo maker. Well, you behave this way around people you like and this way around people you don't. Oh, no, you, you, you're this way at work, but you're this way at home. Paul says this is constantly the mindset you're to have. You're to have this mindset all the time. And what Paul is giving us are godly instructions on how our brains can be rewired. Paul wasn't a neuroscientist and had never looked at functional MRI studies because it hadn't been invented then. If Paul had had the benefit of modern science... Paul would be able to talk even in more detail, but by the providence of God's Holy Spirit working through Paul, Paul didn't need to know the medicine behind knowing what needed to be done. And that is, there are times our brains need to be rewired. And they need to be rewired on a conscious level, but they need to be rewired on, on a subconscious level. You're, you know, the scientists can tell you you've got an amygdala in your brain that is a source of fear and a source of emotional reactions oftentimes. And those reactions were formed so far back in your life that you don't have any grasp or reality of what formed them. But your brain automatically thinks in modes that do survival. I represented, a, 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 I had a lawsuit one time, um, and it dealt with uh, um, the failure of an adoption agency to tell the parents about the, the, the first couple of years of life of this daughter that the parents adopted. And the daughter's mother had been a drug addict 
And the drug addict mother was so strung out on drugs that basically the child grew up malnourished with no attention. The child was just cried for the first two years because the child was always hungry. And the few times the mother was not in a stupor somewhere or out turning tricks to supply her drug habit, she'd come to the house where the kid's just lying there and try to feed the kid. And that kid had deep-seated issues with her brain that were real issues. The way the, the synapses form in a brain in the very early years are huge and it altered the way her brain worked. And some people have a brain that doesn't work good even on a good day. And they had the best upbringing. But Paul says that we are to start this rewiring of our brain to use modern language. He says it in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He understood not knowing the amygdala from a hole in the wall, but he understood how our thinking needs to be changed. And you can be in the Lord forever. Neil, how long have you been walking with the Lord? Over 60 years, God still can rewire Neil's brain and probably needs to in some ways. I love him, but that's a fact. God needs to rewire our brains. And if we bring our brains to the foot of the cross and let the cross inform who we are and how we live and how we prioritize and how we think, then young or old, God's at work rewiring our brain, renewing our minds, turning it into what it needs to be. So Paul says, have this mind. Rewire your brain. Be thinking this way. And God will work in your life. You, it's not remote control. You say, well, I don't understand why I get this or that or the other well I don't either but I can tell you are you diligently seeking the Lord to rewire your brain now that doesn't mean all of a sudden you're like on speed and everything's exciting there's still a time to mourn and a time to dance there's a time to weep there's still struggles there's still despair, but all of those are just stops on the way to allow God to rewire you here, rewire you here, rewire you here as you walk through those things in faith and trust, as you persevere, which will be my buzzword in the thoughts for the day this week coming up. Now, it's important to know here, Paul says, uh, uh, well, first of all, going back to Phronitech, this is uh, uh, a second person plural, um, but this is plural as well, in y'all. So this is y'all have this among y'all. Because Paul's not only concerned with us individually, but this is part of community life. This is part of how we relate to each other. This is how I can encourage you to good works and how you can encourage me to good works. This is how we can help each other in the process. Now, I do have to tell you that within the framework of this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of God. He says, have this mind among yourselves. And it pains me to say this pains me to say this, but I really don't like the way the ESV has translated this. The, the, the Greek says um, this, you have this mindset, you get this mindset among y'all, which also was among or in Christ Jesus. Now I stuck the word was into that. Because it's not there. The Greek just says, 
which also in Christ Jesus. And so scholars can take that different ways. And some scholars say, means this is yours to have in Christ Jesus. Or the New International Version says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is the same mindset Christ had. And I think the NIV got it right. And I haven't talked to the translators about the ESV on this passage yet. I want to, because the way they've translated it, you can read it either way. So maybe they're trying to give you the options in the translation. But I don't think that the options are as... I think the arguments for this being the appropriate translation are so strong, it's easier just to say it that way. So in your relationships with one another, and I actually like the start of the ESV, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours no, which is the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we're going to roll that one out. Here's what he's saying. Think like Jesus. Jesus is the model. Jesus is the paradigm. Think like Jesus. And as you think like Jesus, you'll be rewiring your brain into what your brain ought to be. Because Christ is the model. Now, we need to dig into the song, and I've got nine minutes, so we may not make it all the way through digging into the song. We'll pick up next week, God willing. Remember Paul, trained in law, read in philosophy, versed in athletics? Let me tell you something else about him. He was real into music. Some people, are you into music? Raise your hand. Some of you aren't at all. Just be honest. Are you not into music? Raise your hand. Okay, thank you. I appreciate your honesty. Some people are. A lot of people are. Paul was. Did you know Paul writes over and over about music? He told the Ephesians that they were to address one another. In Psalms, which are songs out of the Old Testament, in hymns, which are Songs <laughs> and spiritual songs, which are songs. He uses all three words. I'm sure they had distinctions in his mind. He's just all over this music stuff. He wants you to make melody to the Lord in your heart. Paul's one of these guys who was walking around singing to himself and singing to others. A song on his lips. He wrote to the Colossians and he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So it's not surprising, perhaps, that Paul practices here what he preaches that he is going to let the word of Christ dwell in himself richly and he will teach and admonish the Philippians in all wisdom with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as well. Because Paul starts quoting a song here. Now, just because he's quoting a song doesn't mean that it's off-subject. It's still on subject. He's still letting the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But here's where the song starts. It's verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this is like fertile ground for Greek nerds. I don't have my glasses on but I think I see capes out there. Capes, you've written on this, haven't you? And you've studied on this. Is this not like fertile ground for Greek nerds or what? Totally fertile. And Capes is the official Greek teacher of this class. Taught for 26 plus years, Greek. Fertile ground. So look at some of this stuff. Look at this right here. Christ, this is the start of a song, okay? Who... In morphe, 
Theu. Morphe. Morphe. What's morphe? Metamorph? Metamorphosis? When a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, it does a metamorphosis? Franz Kafka's book? A morph means a, a, a broad swath of things, but among that is this idea of your form or your outward appearance. But that's not really an adequate way to translate that word. It's a real struggle to find a way to translate it. Shape? Yeah, sort of, but not really. Essence? Yeah, we're kind of getting to something here. This word morphe has a rich history. And I played a game with myself this week. And I thought, what if I had been Aristotle? And I had been reading Paul's letter to the Philippians. Heavens, Philippi was named after Philip II, the king of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, who conquered it and renamed it. Do you know what else Philip II did? He hired Aristotle to tutor his son, Alexander the Great. What if I'd been Alexander, uh, Philip, uh, uh, I mean Aristotle, and I'd just managed to live for another 400 years and I'm reading this letter? I'd have been fascinated by what Paul had to say, especially about physics. In, in Aristotle's second book on physics, he talks about how his, his concept of physics is a concern over how things change. Oh, mercy. I'm just not going to get this done. I'm just not going to get this done. Not even close. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to have to stop, and I'm going to tell you what you've got to look forward to. We're going to talk about physics and Aristotle and how Aristotle would have read this letter because Morphe was one of his key words. In fact, he distinguished from his teacher, Plato, who had a theory of forms. And, and, and when I'm, see, I'm getting back into this is nerddom, but it's good, good, good nerddom. I promise you this is rich stuff. So you got to come back next week. But, 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 and here's the other thing we're going to do next week. We're going to talk about the Cyclos tombstone. It's a tombstone that was found right outside Ephesus that's roughly contemporaneous with Paul. And it's got the oldest melody that we're able to reconstruct. These notes above the Greek letters that I've circled, these are actual music notations on the tombstone. And scholars are able to take that tombstone and take those notes, and they're able to transcribe them onto a key. So I'm going to play for you next week a melody, a song that was a contemporary of Paul's so that you can hear it. And then we'll also play a Christian version of it based upon Philippians 2. Just something to look forward to. But right now, we got to go. We got a good service coming up and I need to get to the points to ponder and we'll pick back up next week. So here they are. First of all, the saving gospel is tied to a well-lived life. And this whole concept of living like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, should not strike us as odd because Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And the word that Jesus uses there is the same word that Paul's going to use. That we are to be thinking and living like Jesus. We'll parse that a little bit more next week. But for now, just know that Jesus is our model life. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This whole thing 
is about God's love for you and me and wanting to take us out of the muck and mire of this world and give us a new world. And right now, before the fire comes to purge all of this, we're after the flood and before the fire. We're in the now, but the not yet. And, and, and God is working in us, preparing us, and, and, and changing us in anticipation of what's to come. And so I praise God. Because as Gordon Fee said, in the cross, God's true character, his outlandish expression of love was fully manifested. And with that, it's time for church, but I want to give you a blessing uh, through Jesus before we go. So, Father, I do ask you to bless everyone who hears this message. Live right now, live on the internet, later on the internet. Father, would you bless and would you touch them with truth, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what Jesus has done. And would you let that powerful character and, 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 and Jesus infuse all of us with a recognition for our need and a driving earnest desire for you to transform us. That's our prayer in Jesus. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.